Never has there been more of a time for intergenerational planning, discovery, asking more questions of the person in front of you about their kids and their parents. To get the next gen is to work with our customers and have those conversations about family planning, uh, whether it's Medicare or elder fraud or other issues, and then ensuring that when we have these customers that we ask them, does it make sense to bring in other family members into the conversation? We always looked at it from the lens of, would I send my friends and family to this advisor? I was in one meeting with a, a bank CEO. I said, do you use the advisor? And he just laughed. He's like, no. I often think we don't realize what the building blocks of trust are, and you've got to relate to those to make sure you're building trust. I used to interview people and look at numbers. What's your trailing 12? Where'd you work at? What type of training did you have? I'm looking at empathy. I'm looking at different traits that I never looked at before. The days of forgivable draws and callbacks and things like that, those are way gone. You're never going to get that fiduciary experience if your comp model's messed up. Data is the new oil because it is that valuable. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. This series focuses on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. And now I'll turn it over to our hosts, Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel. Hello, I am Scott Stathis and welcome to this episode of Industry Leadership and Success called The Next Wave of Gathering and Retaining Assets. So during this episode, what it will take to stay relevant in the wealth management space as acute technology disruptors, generational shifts, and quickly evolving client expectations present what I think are existential challenges. Um, so what do we have to do to be relevant and survive uh, five years from now, essentially. So uh, we will get into that discussion in a moment, but first let me pass it to Bob so he can introduce himself and have our guests introduce themselves. Bob? Well, thanks, Scott. I am Bob Mattel, and let me also welcome you to this podcast, another in our industry leadership and success series. Today, we are sponsored by Priority Financial Group. For more than 20 years, Priority Financial Group, PFG, has assisted financial institutions in building and elevating their investment and insurance business. PFG is also a leader in the RIA space, and no doubt we will hear a lot about that in this podcast. So let's meet our panel, and let's start with Mike Pryor, the CEO and president of PFG. Thank you, Bob. It's an honor to be here, uh, you distinguished gentlemen. And uh, uh, Mike Pryor, president and CEO of uh, Priority Financial Group. Uh, PFG is a third-party RIA helping financial institutions maximize their uh, fiduciary responsibility and their opportunity in the advisory services side of the business. And we look forward to hearing lots about that today. Let's move to Jim Fujinaga from Hancock Whitney. Jim. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Fujinaga. I'm with Hancock Whitney. I oversee the uh, investment RIA program for a wealth management program. Uh, we're in the five Gulf Coast states, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, and we have a couple hundred branches, and we look forward to continuing to grow and expand our business. And last week, Jim was also the first recipient of the annual Stathis Mattel Recognition Award, named the Fuji after Jim. Fuji standing for friend, unassuming, joy, and inspired. So again, congratulations on that, and that will be an annual event for Stathis Mattel at our roundtables. Let's move to Dave Zimmerman. 
Well, and and Jim, to make it public in case people haven't seen it, congratulations. I'm sure, you know, everyone on the podcast wishes you well. And we've all known you in different ways and we've uh, we've appreciated your work and your friendship. So uh, again, congratulations. Yeah, my name is David Zimmerman, most recently the president of Atlantic Union Bank Wealth Management. And prior to that, I ran the broker dealer for First Citizens Bank. I've been in the industry uh, for over 30 years now, and I'm transitioning into uh, setting up my own consulting firm. So I'm looking forward to being on with you guys today. Well, thanks, David, for joining us. If you had the total years of experience on this podcast, it's got to be close to 200. So thanks again to our panel and PFG for sponsoring today's conversation. So, Scott, let's dive into the next wave of gathering and retaining assets. So here's my first question. It is our opinion that that our industry may be at the biggest inflection point in a generation and how you as a firm respond to this inflection point will determine whether you survive. So my question is, do you agree with that? And if so, what are your thoughts on the dynamics of this inflection point? Jim, you want to kick us off? Well, if we're not at the inflection point, we're very close to it. Uh, and by that, I mean there's still time to adapt to all the changes that are occurring. But as a firm, we really need to, and as an individual advisor, you really need to make sure that you're open, you're flexible, you understand where the future is going with the rapidly technology uh, enhancements that are coming down or way, as well as with the client, the client expectations, the client engagement is critical. And we need to really find out as we have those discussions with both our uh, baby boomers as well as the next gen, determine how do they want to be communicated with, what type of technology we need to do to enhance that client communication. It goes beyond just simple client portals and other types of uh, advising units. It becomes truly a different interaction with different client segments. So it's critical for us to find that out first before we can you know, take the next steps at ensuring that we provide a productive environment, one that really enhances that relationship and we're able to gather those assets as well as retain our assets for the future. We're presented with a unique set of challenges relative to the client experience because, I mean, right now we're wed to the baby boomers from a wealth management standpoint, right? But the, this next generation, the generations after the baby boomers are inheriting a ton of wealth over the next 20 years or so, and they expect a, a completely different type of interaction. So we're we're kind of stuck in the middle, right? We're used to interacting with the baby boomers and 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 they interact with us in one way, but these next generation, you know, folk are looking for a different type of interaction led by digital and then evolving towards more than digital, right? So that's that's a big part of the in, inflection point. Mike, David, any thoughts on that? Uh, I'll just second uh, what Jim said there and I I do think that uh Never has there been more of a time for uh, intergenerational planning, right? Really just discovery, asking more questions of the person in front of you about uh, their kids and their parents, right? And trying to really go deeper with those folks to understand what's important to them may not be the same thing that's important to their kids and their parents. So really working the, the existing client base that way and having those conversations, but as an institution, serving the membership and serving the customer base to ask them, what they're looking for, and then building your advisor team and your digital solutions around that. You know, the inflection points for me are interesting because I've always thought that we we tend to be students of the market and students of our client, but 
we're rarely not students of the industry and paying attention to some of the bigger, longer term trends or call them inflection points, you know, when they when they happen. I, I happen to think they happen all the time and they seem more major at times than others. But I, I kind of rewind the video and say, you know, for decades, products were the focus and firms could differentiate themselves by products. And then that kind of all came together in the industry and commoditized by product. Then we got technology. The bigger firms could afford the technology. So they kind of took off early and they differentiated by the tech platforms. And then, you know, recently we're all catching up because it's a lot more affordable. It's a lot more agile. Uh, there's a lot of new firms disrupting. So, you know, those all felt like major trends that became inflection points. But we did adapt, to use, you know, Jim's word, we did adapt as we, we went along. And there's some obvious things pushing it today, whether it's digital transformation or, or certainly demographics. We've always had kind of demographic shifts and changes with different expectations, too. I, I think there's a couple that stand out for me is I think we've got to reassess our business models. And when I say that, one of those to me is the fee structure and how we charge kind of the inflection point around what, you know, what what the pricing is going to look like and how we're going to you know, structure our fees going forward. Certainly, I think, you know, as mentioned, the client engagement strategies because of all these tools we now have and what that means, but it also bleeds into the one that I think is the real inflection point, and that's the humanization of the industry. I think as technology takes over and does the work that many of us used to do individually as advisors, it's automated now. I have more time with my client what am I doing with that time? How am I treating the client differently than I've ever treated before? So that is, you know, the client engagement. And I think some of us are uncomfortable with that. We got into the industry being technical and being, you know, we wanted to talk smart and talk about product and talk about things that were complicated. So I, I think a huge inflection point is the humanization of the industry. I would just add to that, uh, the EQ versus IQ, right? You know, we, they, were, they used to hire us because we were smarter than everybody else about investments, and now we're not because everything you know, is available. So it's that EQ that really leaning in to care about the person and really care about their family and really you know, not just the account. So to your point, the humanization, love that. I'd like to just add to that too. agree with both David and Mike's assessment of the advice model and how that's evolving. I mean, we're all trying to do more financial plans today but it really goes beyond that. And it goes into conversations that are much deeper with this, um, with this group of, of our customers or top clients and becoming their counselor in many ways, becoming their family office in many ways. And in other areas too, where I used to interview people and look at numbers, you know, what's your trailing 12? Where'd you work at? What type of training did you have? I'm looking at empathy. I'm looking at different traits that I never looked at before as we're going through the interview process and making our new hires. So I think that's a key differentiator. The title of this episode is is about gathering assets, right? And so how do you how do you gather assets by engendering trust? How do you engender trust by evolving and developing deep relationships? We as a channel historically have not been good at that right? Because we've been transactional, but now we're realizing that we have to do that. And we're, and we're starting to get better and better. But, you know, the reality is, if you want to get 100% wallet share of any of your clients, and most of us don't have that right now, you need to focus on developing trust. So 
part of the inflection point is that evolution from being somebody that helps with a transaction and maybe getting a better return to pushing all that aside because none of that matters anymore. It's 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 really getting to know a client well enough where they know you have their back and they and they trust you. And Mike, you brought up the intergenerational planning. Well, talk about relationship development, right? If if you're going to sit at least on an annual basis with an entire family, you know, your client's entire family, in order for you to have the honor to do that, they're going to have to trust you. <laughs> How do you engender that trust is a big question. And, you know, that's some of the stuff that we're focusing on. The other interesting thing is that um, we have such a wide variety of touch points as financial institutions now. And how do you leverage all those touch points to do what I'll call elements of discovery so we learn more and more about our clients? Uh, so that enables us to understand their life and to do the things that engender trust, right? I mean, if you think about you know, we have the web, we have social media, we have digital marketing, now mobile and app-based stuff, you know, as a touch point. And we, we have remote advisors, we have branch-based advisors, we have wealth advisors. I mean, there's so many touch points that we have to optimize to appropriately respond to this inflection point and start engendering trust. It's a big job, but it's exciting, right? And we have to think about how do we stand out? How do we differentiate ourselves across touch points and start developing those deep relationships so we can deserve to manage 100% of a client's assets, right? That's that's kind of the big question. With that, Bob, let me pass it to you because I think your question is very relevant. Not only is it relevant, but this past Monday, I had my own meeting with my financial advisor and he remembered that my daughter just graduated. So he starts out, how was the graduation? And he morphs into, I know you did college funding. Was there any assets left in the 529? I did not know that there's an opportunity. There is some money left in her 529. She went to a state school for us to, at some point, turn that into a uh, an R, uh, a Roth IRA. Never knew that in my life. No clue. So this guy, he's not a bank FA, okay? I have a bank FA as well because I like to play one against the other. <laughs> this guy starts out the conversation. How's graduation? I had no clue. I thought I was going to have a taxable event. Don't have a taxable event anymore. And he convinced me very easily to open up an account for both of my kids with him, playing it perfect. The trust that he has just garnered from me is crazy. Fuji wants his name because you're going to recruit him. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I do have a bank FA. And this is a lesson to all those listeners out there. Follow what's going on outside your industry and you will achieve even greater success in our industry. Okay, so they're next gens. One's 26, one's 20, one's 25. What will it take to serve that next generation of clients? How will their client experience expectations impact us? Because my daughter also, separate from that, said, Dad, I want to buy something. What app should I use? Well, she answered it herself and said Robinhood, which I don't even have a clue on how to, I would even use that. But Mike, take us through what your thoughts are on this. Absolutely. Yeah, great question. I have a four kids myself, 19 to 30. And so I have these conversations frequently with them. You know, like, what are you looking at and why? And, uh, and actually I just came from a, a RIA conference here the last couple of days. And on the main stage, they're talking about how we're trying to bring in like younger advisors to help meet with younger clients, you know, because in that way they can kind of connect, you know, at that level. But a lot of older advisors are trying to bring the young advisors in and train them how to be like us, how to be 50. Then the point of the stage was, 
Don't do that because they're not going to become like you. You got to understand and become more like them if you really want to connect with that next gen client. And that was a really good lesson. That was, that was a good point. Like we're all trying to teach them how to be the old school way. And this is how we did it. But we actually got to listen and listen and listen and listen of how should we be doing it now going forward. And things are changing. The expectations of an hour and a half financial planning meeting at the branch, that's not happening much anymore. Not even boomers want that. You know, video planning and making it easy, making everything on the uh, phone, uh, integrated apps are uh, super important to uh, make it easy, make it friendly, make it educational. They're looking, they, they thrive on education. They enjoy the education. They don't want to be uh, sold. They want to be uh, educated and inspired, but they don't want to be sold, right? And so having that kind of a conversation where uh, you really do care about them, you're, like, you're not just trying to open up a new account. You're really trying to open up a new relationship for the long term. That, that helps, you know, uh, just making sure your uh, presence is good online. We'll talk more about technology later too, but having a website presence is super important that's, that, that it resonates. We have some websites out there, banks and credit unions that are, you know, 10 years old. They just need to be updated. They need to always be updated, you know, and that social media presence is important too. It, that's so true. And my, my kids definitely don't want to learn how to be a boomer. They want to, they want to maintain their next gen status. So Jim, <laughs> exactly. So Jim, you know, I, I know you want my financial advisor. I'm not giving his name up because I don't want to lose him. What's your experience with this whole next gen thing? What we're really focused on today to get to next gen is to work with our customers and have those conversations with their top clients about family planning, about going beyond financial planning to, to showcase other areas that we could support them with, with issues that are coming up today. Uh, whether it's Medicare or elder fraud or other issues, and then ensuring that when we have these customers, that we ask them if we have their permission and does it make sense to bring in other family members into the conversation. And then just ensuring that you do that, and you could do that through Zoom today, regardless of where they live or when they visit during the holidays or whenever it might be. So we're seeing success there. And then the conversation becomes more with the next gen to everything that, that Mike was talking about and it's a different way, right? They expect, it's, it's table stage. You've got to have digital interaction. It's, it's just a must. And your client portal has to be simple and easy and, and has to be the type of portal that uh, they see education from, that it's beyond just performance, but integrated financial planning and so on down the line. And that's, that's critical too. I think though, through this interaction, we're going to be able to continue to keep those um, next-gen investors as they start inheriting larger wealth down the line because they're going to see the relationships we provide that are beyond just, you know, financial planning, beyond estate planning, it's into legacy planning and everything else that goes with it that's going to help us bridge that gap. Because when, when it's serious money, you know, I think it's still going to go to an advisor. People need to validate, even if they do their own self-source planning of sorts, they want confirmation, they want validation, they want advice. So I think we need to make sure that we, we take that position with our existing clients to get to the next gen. Then the only other thing I'll say is that we've never did social media or social marketing until recently, and now we're in, embarking in that area. Um, I don't have any success yet to share with anybody, but you know we do have a, a younger group that we brought through uh, through internships as well as through junior financial advisors that, uh, to Mike's point, which is great, you got to learn from them on how to work with this 
target market. Well, you're absolutely right. It's the TikTok generation, and I'm sure they're getting a lot of advice from TikTok, whether it be good or bad. But you're right about the retaining, because that's the other half of this. It's the next wave of gathering and retaining assets. So my advisor, Ben, he's got me for another 40 years. Yes, I'm going to live to 101. But now he's got accounts in my kid's name. And so he's now changed a 40-year relationship to twice that. David, I'm sure you have thoughts about this as well, having spent some a lot of time in the banks. Yeah, and I, I I mean, I love the points that were made. I think we've got to, you know, focus on the uniqueness of a generation. There's an old saying, you are what you are when, and, and you kind of have a 10-year period that formed a lot of the way you look at life and the things you're comfortable with, whether it's technology or other things. I also think about the things that are the same, though. What's a common thread, in other words, through most generations, especially in our business, when you think of things like trust, which we've mentioned already, everyone wants trust. I think everyone has a desire for transparency. Everyone wants you to be you know, disclosing and open and authentic with the relationship. And I think everybody wants self-control over their future. They want to have some confidence that they're going to achieve the goals they want to achieve. So I think as as much as there are these differences out there, some of what drives the relationship are common to each of the generations. I don't, I don't think we want to lose sight of that. So I think you have to marry those two. Uh, and ultimately, it comes down to, you know, knowing knowing your client, not KYC the way we think about it from a regulatory standpoint, but you have to ask them, you know, what, what's different, what's unique about the way you like to interact and do things. And I think all, all of those things combined, it's just it's just an awareness, which I think the group has done a good job of saying there are differences and we need to make sure we stay on top of that. Well, it's definitely about discovery. And I just go back to that same you know scenario that happened to me on Monday. My financial advisor has been asking me for years. What about the kids? What's your, what's your son? What's what industry is your son in? Has he started his 401k? My son started his 401k before he got his first paycheck because I made sure that 10% of his assets would be put put aside because that's really what, you know, if I'm in the industry, I want them to also appreciate what um, financial independence can can do for you. Mike, did you have some closing thoughts on this question? Yeah, it's something that we just got to stay on top of. The big topic here lately in wealth management is AI and what's the impact of that? You know, some some institutions are still just trying to get warmed up to Robo and Robinhood, but that might have already been like done. Like so everyone's kind of keeping an eye on where AI is going to take us next. And so we'll try to look around that corner and position our banks and credit unions to be in a good spot to uh, keep adding value you know, to their yeah. members and their customers. Yeah, I, I've been telling people to learn AI before AI learns you. So <laughs> there it is. Yep. <laughs> I, I think with that, I think, Scott, you got some some thoughts as well. well yeah, just a follow-up thought, uh, Mike, you and I have a mutual client that is very focused on the importance of what I'll call financial wellness education, right? And and this mutual client believes that this financial wellness education has to be embedded in the processes by which we're working with clients. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, to a degree, it's just in time learning, right? Now, so Bob, you gave a good example. You didn't know that you can convert your 529 into a Roth, right? So this financial wellness education never ends. But I think the financial wellness education has to be not only uh, when we're in in-person meetings, but also embedded into a lot of the other touch points that we have, especially app-based touch points for this next generation, because they still have a lot to learn. Bob mentioned the TikTok generation. It's a statistical fact that this next generation is learning most of what they know about investments off of TikTok and YouTube. 
it's not exactly the best place to learn, right? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of people that think they're experts and really aren't. They're not certified. They've never, you know, gone to school for it. They've, they don't, they're not licensed and they're giving out financial and, you know, education, quote unquote, information. So I think that's another part of this, right? This inflection point and engendering trust is being good at providing that just-in-time learning, you know, in the work stream, so to speak, right, uh, of, of what you're doing with your clients and becoming that, that, that subject matter expert. Mike? Yes, Scott, I would just add to that that, you know, financial education workshops, a lot of institutions stopped doing them a while back. They weren't maybe getting the attendance, you know, COVID and everything. But when we do financial education webinars and we do them every quarter, they're very well attended still. And it, it's still, they work. It's worth the, you're not buying, you know, cookies in a branch anymore. You know, you're doing it online, but uh, it's a great way to deliver that education. And you get members and uh, customers, all ages, you know, all different, you know, you know, places in life. And they're looking for that education. Uh, so uh, I don't think we should stop doing financial education that way. I think that's a big thing. But also uh, with the employees, anybody who's uh, client facing, should like whether it's the phone center, the branches, they really should be, who's teaching them? You know, it used to be advisors would run around and do a branch uh, branch training, you know, rotation type of thing. I don't know that that's really happening as much anymore. So making sure that we're educating the employees who are client-facing on some of these topics too and helping them with their financial needs is a great place to start because then that just makes them understand wealth management better and how we are helping the customers at the end of the day. And Mike, I know you and your your team uh, and your advisors that are in all of your client institutions are very good relationship builders, and it's it, it's evidenced by the fact that you're ninety two percent fee based business, right? Which is a relationship model. I mean, you right. only do eight eight percent brokerage business, transactional business. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have this discussion. I mean, you're ahead of the curve in that regard, and and I think that curve that I'm referring to, and we'll talk more about this, is is the evolution towards being a true fiduciary uh, right. and, and doing what it takes to become a true fiduciary. And that's part of winning the trust of your clients, right? So so good, so good job with, with the evolution of uh, you and your firm in that, in that regard. So Z, um, I, you, you probably have some additional thoughts about this, but let me, I, I wanna pass this to you, but let me wrap it in, in a, another question that's related. Uh, I, I believe that, well, I think we all will acknowledge that transactions are now commoditized, right? I mean, if you're if you are transactional, you are obsolete, right? Because transactions are automated now. There's no need for a human in the middle of a transaction. So transactions are commoditized, and true trust-based relationships are now differentiators. The more you can engender trust, the more you're differentiated as a, an advisor and a program of advisors. So how do we, you know, how does that impact us and how do we react to that, Z? Yeah, again, we, we throw this word around a lot, like we all understand it and, and we all deliver it in our, our added value approach. I, I have two ways that that I like to come at it. One is thinking about trust. Um, you know, I think a lot of people believe it's an intangible, but it's really not. There's things you can do to build trust that are very tangible. And I, I think as we coach financial advisors on the front end, we need to make sure they understand that. And I, I've got some notes written down here. There's seven words that I think relate to trust. One's clarity, compassion, character, 
competency, commitment, connection, contribution, and consistency. Think about some of those words, and just to pull some out, consistency in particular. If you have an FA who's random, they do things differently all the time, and there's no consistency, does that build trust? No. If they lack competency, does that build trust? No. Character, no. So, I mean, you can go through these different words and build a framework around how you have to show up every day as an advisor to make sure that you're building trust, not losing trust. And it's all we all know it's a lot easier to lose trust than build trust. But stick with consistency. And that's where, again, I think if you focus on how financial advisors run their businesses or how, how maybe we run our businesses, You've got to be consistent. And the, the the analogy I use is if you took a drink of Coke Cola every time and it tasted different, you wouldn't trust the brand. That consistency has to be there for you to believe. So whether it's in the operation of you know one of the, the support firms, one of the custodian firms, or the front end with an advisor, these building blocks that build trust are real. And you've got to get this in the minds of the people that are delivering for the for the benefit of the client. So I'm a big believer that that trust is at the very top of the list. But I often think we don't realize what the building blocks of trust are. And you've got to relate to those to make sure you're building trust. And consistency points to process, right? The importance of process. And we've talked about that a lot, both in our executive retreats and our on, on our podcast. But man, your process is your product and you better nail that process. You better obsess over it and make sure it's it's as it as good as possible and differentiated from the 90% of the others out there, right? I can be different yep. and consistent the way you want to be consistent is different, but it's just, I'm building my brain. I'm building a lot around these things. So I think, I think they're pillar for, for trust. Yeah. So Jim, I, I, I'm guessing that this subject resonates with you as well as you've helped your program evolve. And you see, I'm sure a tier of your advisors that are doing a better job than others in gendering trust and decommoditizing their practice. So what are your thoughts on that? Just to add another uh, C-type word, you know, connecting, right? And I think David talked about that as well. It's beyond communication. It's making sure that you really connect with that customer. And that helps obviously with trust and, and being able to, another C word, counselor, right? And that's what happens a lot of times with these relationships. You know, people joke about being a, a, a psychologist and so on in a lot of these interactions because that's what occurs. When you start building that trust, every issue that comes in from within that customer starts coming out. You know, deep issues that they have. What are their fears? What are their issues? What, it's about outliving their money. It's about this and that and, and how they interact with their children. So you don't get to that point until you connect with that customer. And then you really become that trusted advisor to those clients. So I think those relationships are going to occur. And we've seen that with our top people, where our top people, their clients are calling them for everything. You know, it's just not investments. It's everything that's in their lives that occurs. And these advisors are utilizing that to help their customers in different ways. It could be anything. You know, it, it could be from... You know, uh, it could be it could be financial related like we do with taxes and and with legal, but it could also be travel arrangements. It could be 
uh, colleges that um, we see or advisors are being asked, hey, what do you think of these colleges for my kids now that we're in college season? It just goes beyond a transaction type relationship to a real relationship with that customer. So I see our top advisors really taking the time, the patience, the long-term road to build that foundation. So that's where we see more success coming from our top people. Yeah, so it's interesting, Jim. We've touched on this topic in a variety of ways in past podcasts and, and during our executive retreats. And the topic is the evolution of what an advisor does from working with just investable assets to also working with illiquid assets. And David, you mentioned the evolution of fees before, right? So talk about an inflection point. You know, everybody that listens to our podcast knows that I believe that our evolution of fees, we started with commission and then we went to fees based on AUM, but it's not going to stop there. Our evolution is going to, is going to go to fee for service models, right? And you look at the best advisors out there and they're doing what you just said, Jim, they're managing not only liquid assets, but illiquid assets. They're getting paid to do that. How are they getting paid to do that? Well, they either have a subscription model, right? It's an annual fee or it's a monthly fee or it's a project-based fee, or they have an annual minimum. And if the AUM you know, fees cover it, fine. If not, then they they true up at the at the end of the year. But that's what we're seeing, you know, the evolution. But that's a true trust-based model, right? And the 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 benefit of that is that it also captures a decent percentage of that next generation. And what do I mean by that is they've not accumulated a lot of assets yet and maybe not enough to make it worth working with them on a, and a fee based on AUM uh, structure. But if you say to them, listen, I charge a minimum of X per year to do all of this stuff, a lot of them say, I need it, let's go, right? So yeah, that's still, it's a, it's a profitable model. Uh, it is a fiduciary model. So Mike, I'm going to pass it to you. So you used the term third-party RIA before, right. and you and I have had discussions about that. You are, for all intents and purposes, an RIA with 92% of your business being, right, fee-based RIA business. You, by default, have evolved into a third-party RIA for the bank and credit union space, which is incredibly intriguing, potentially disruptive, and it's a new paradigm, and, and I love it. So, you know, the subject of this is how do you decommoditize your business? How do you get to true trust-based relationships? You've done it with your fiduciary structure. So tell us a little bit about that evolution and how you've done that. Yeah, starting back in uh, when I first got into the industry, it's kind of second career. I was a, you know, a corporate person at American Express Credit Card Services, went into financial planning, worked for a CFP, became a, fun, a para planner and then an advisor and, you know, built a practice and, and did that. And as I was getting into the uh, bank and credit union space, I, I recognized that there was a lot of advisors just selling variable annuities and taking the top commission. <laughs> and as a consumer, like, that's not good, right? As a manager, as a leader, like, that's just not good for your clients. And so it evolved that I just basically ended up selling my practice just to help bank and credit union execs identify if their advisor was very good or not, right? You know, and then so I can go in, ask a few questions, about 15 minutes, I'll know if the advisor is a good advisor or not. You know, and uh, we've always, from that point, we always looked at it from the lens of, would I send my friends and family to this advisor? And if I can't say yes to that, then why would I expect the tellers to refer to them, right? You know, and that's the was the whole model back then. And so I was in one meeting with a, a bank CEO. I said, do you use the advisor? And he just laughed. He's like, no, 
<laughs> I was like, wow, I'm like, well, here we go, right? That maybe that's the problem, right? But there were other times where I'd go in and do that assessment and the advisor was actually really good quality. It was the institution that wasn't really supporting them right, you know, and referrals were way too low and based on their size. So, so is this an assessment of the quality of the program, right? Looking at it from that fiduciary lens, even like way back then before Reg BI, you know, in 2005, when we, we came up with our values, clients best interest first. That was before Reg BI. Yeah, that was like 20 years ago almost. So it's always been that way. And, and six years ago, we formed the RIA after going to a Schwab conference and just said, oh my goodness, look at the technology, look at the pricing. You know, this is just a no-brainer. That's been the evolution. I think, yeah, we are one of the leading RIAs in the country for banks and credit unions. Is we get it. We get their compliance model. We get their desire for fiduciary services inside the institution. And we always start with the lens of, you know, would I send my friends and family to this advisor? If you did get that right, then the program will take off. You'll, you'll have better than industry average results because the branches will like the advisor and they'll refer more to them. The clients will stay and they'll refer more to them. So it just kind of, I always think starts with the right people, right seats, getting that right advisor in the, in the branch. Well, talk about a simple but effective filter. When <laughs> I send my friends or family to that advisor, that's it, right? That's the only filter you need. And you you need that filter when you're interviewing advisors to hire, right? You need that filter for a firm like yours that is providing advisors to banks and credit unions. It's pretty simple. But you as an advisor, right, have to think about that. Am I the type of advisor, you know, that my friends would send their mom to, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Exactly. So it's a, it's a good filter. All right, Bob, I'm going to pass it back to you because I think your next question is, again, relevant to the, the line of this discussion. Well, yeah, let's let's switch gears just a little bit. Technology has been on fast forward since March of 2020 when everybody embraced DocuSign, Zoom, WebEx, Teams, some other product by Google that I don't remember. You know, are there shifts in the type of interactions that human advisors should focus on compared to things that should now be left to technology? What should be left to technology? David, I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, and we've talked all around this, I think, all, all morning as we've gone through a lot of these topics. But, uh, you know, I, I think about maybe a few years ago when robo-investing first came out and everyone got nervous about it, it's going to replace me or, you know, all, all those things. And and I actually would have conversation and suggest, look, I hope they robo everything. I hope we have robo-insurance and robo trust and robo, you know, all the solutions become as automated as possible, which, by the way, I think we're headed that way. And, and the reason is it gives us more time with our client. We're not over here having to do the work of creating the solution or putting pieces of it together. So it, it allows a lot of what we've talked about to have the interaction, to have the connection, to you know, work on the things that that make us know our clients better than before. And and again, I, I think we want as many of the things to be automated. And I use the example of, and this kind of flows into what I think Jim highlighted around empathy and some of those things. It's really about algorithms. You know, you put algorithms together and things can be automated, but you can't put, I don't think you can put an algorithm around this. The client walks in and says, Bob, my wife just died or I have a special needs child, or think of all of the things that life throws at all of us that, you know, 
probably we don't want a robot to deal with that we'd like to have human interaction on and someone that can lead us through a different approach to maybe how to use that data or how to use that automation with what we're going through. So I think we are living our lives with our clients. Jim used the C word counselor. I'll use the C word coach. And I, I, I believe throughout our careers, you know, we've kind of heard if we haven't said it, FAs say it, I might as well be my client's coach or, you know, I'm, I'm giving them advice quantitatively on goals and all their financial things. But I'm also talking to them about all these things that don't really make me feel like it's financial advisor related. But it's true. I think it's merging in a way where, you know, we let off saying, you know, the humanization of the industry. I, I think we're becoming not just financial coach. We're becoming coaches to our, our clients. So in, I think we have to embrace this transition of let the automation become the automation in a powerful way to give us access to solutions quickly and more depth with the data that gives us more time with our client to go deeper and get those connections uh, even deeper than we've ever had. So I embrace it. I think it's exciting. Uh, it is different. None of us really came into the industry thinking that's what it was going to be. And so behind all this is adaptation. Everyone, the FAs have to really adapt and be, be open-minded and willing to look at who they are and how they show up differently as we move forward. Quickly, to your point, David, there is no algorithm for trust, right? No, absolutely. And I was going to say, you know, we, we can use the technology and, and even Zoom to build that trust. Because when you use Zoom with a client, they're letting you into their house. You're seeing their living room, their kitchen table. You're innate, that you're using technology to enable and further extend. We all, we're using Zoom right now. For those that don't know, this podcast is we're using Zoom to enable so we can see each other and talk to each other in our offices, in our home offices, in our bank branches, in our living rooms. And that's what technology is enabling us to do. Before the pandemic, it was all the time it took for that client to go to the bank and meet you. Now you can meet them. You're saving that time for when those personal interactions are important, like you just mentioned. You referenced Jim several times in your chat there, so I'm going to move to Jim. I agree with um, with everything, first of all, what David was talking about. But just to add to that, there are some people that still do fear technology. I mean, it's new. It's changing. I've done business this way for all these years. My clients still appreciate everything I do. And that could be a short-term solution if, if that's all you're going to do with your, your business. But if you really want to grow your business and prosper, you got to open your mind and adapt to this. And know this, technology is not going to be the demise of the financial advisor. It's going to help advisors become you know, uh, higher up the totem pole in terms of being true advisors to their customers, subject matter experts being that coach and counselor that we talked about, utilizing technology to take away some of the administrative tasks that we all are burdened with. So utilize technology that way. Utilize technology with your clients. You know, we talk about next best solutions, but in addition to that, utilize it for client segmentation beyond just wealth of your customers, but needs, wants, and wishes that we could really truly segment our customers with. And if you do that, you'll be able to really manage your time efficiently and productively with those uh, customers that really start expecting a higher level of service than they've ever had before. So I'm, I'm excited about what technology has. And I know for many people it's scary. And I know there's a lot of scary things too that we have to 
you know, protect ourselves with, especially with, you know, uh, fraud and so on and elder abuse and things that you see out there. But utilizing it correctly is really going to be the next level, the next part of our business as we move forward. And don't overcomplicate the whole technology thing. The financial advisor that I mentioned before, I've never met. He's been my financial advisor for 10 years. He lives in North Carolina. I do not live in North Carolina. I live in New York and Florida. 10 years ago, we didn't have Zoom. It was a telephone. That's all it was. Bank. That's a key point there. But bank, you probably have three, four dozen bank and credit union clients, and I'm sure and you've been sitting on your hands thinking about this whole technology stack conversation. What do you have for us? Well, yeah, I, I love everything that's been addressed already uh, spot on. I look at it like it's not really binary. And sometimes the marketing departments of a financial institution, you know, they start thinking about boomers versus millennials and, and, and things like that. But if you think about it from a, a, a age wave type of thing of how things go, there's times where I've been on legal Zoom and there's times where I used Quicken Right. And then now I pay an attorney and now I pay a CPA. So everybody can use the technology to, to whatever level of comfort they get to. But then having that personal trusted advisor, subject matter expert in person, that's going to come in handy at some other point in time. And so you look at the legal industry, right? The uh, legal Zoom. Right. And now but attorneys are making like 800 bucks an hour. They're doing fine. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of really great attorneys making a lot of money out there because legal Zoom's taking care of all that little stuff that they didn't want to get to anyway. Uh, same with Quicken you know, and TurboTax. Right. They take care of a bunch of the small stuff. The CPAs are making more money than ever. Yeah, you know, they're doing fine. You know, I think our advice industry will be the same. I think, you know, the, the robo solutions and those uh, things will be perfect for a lot of people for a while. Then they'll, when they want that advisor relationship, that subject matter expert, that second opinion, uh, which we see a lot, you know, working with like engineers, uh, a lot of times they're brilliant. They build up a really nice 401k, but then they want that second opinion right before you know, they execute the play. And so I, I think that'll always be there. You know, it's just we're humans and having that uh, connection, you know, is going to be valuable. So I would think the majority of the people, you know, there'll always be some total do-it-yourselfers, never need to speak to anybody a subject matter expert, and that's okay. But I think the vast majority of people are going to still seek out a good quality advisor from that standpoint. So back to the financial institutions, they should have the technology, and, and we're rolling that out at our uh, our institutions that we work with uh, to have that digital advice solution. So it's there for people, meet them where they're at, but also that that would funnel to the, uh, the real life advisor who can help with like the bigger, more challenging things that'll uh, come into people's lives sooner or later. And a lot of it is managing their expectations and finding out, you know, how they do business. And that, that almost morphs into our next question, which is things about data and client segmentation, which is always important. And if you really mine your database, you can really, you know, gather the intelligence to know how to meet the client's needs. So um, let's go to Scott for the next question then. Talking about technology, right? So the, the next question is about data, because with all this technology that we're using, we're gathering a ton of data. And I think it's a fair statement to say that most of us, when I say yes, I'll just look at the banks and credit unions that have investment and wealth management programs. Uh, so most of us are not leveraging all of the data that we're gathering. And it's kind of disparate data. It's sitting in different databases, right? It's not aggregated. In the perfect world scenario, all that data gets aggregated into and normalized into one database. Mine that data. Right. And this is where AI 
most definitely will will eventually come into play in the background, right? So, so the question is, since data is everything, how should we leverage it? If we're really forward thinking, and even if we're not doing it now, what is our vision for how we should be leveraging data? And are we moving at all in that direction? Jim, can I pick on you? <laughs> uh, absolutely, because I do work at a bank and, and to your point, we have a lot of data. Um, and I remember having this conversation about three years ago as we embarked on a major initiative with the organization on data mining. And my first words, I, I'm in the South now, right? Is data is the new oil. And because it is that valuable in terms of what we need to do in terms of our customer base. And think about all the data we have. And we did embark on a, on a, uh, on a journey that's not yet complete, but getting close to that. We have data from our wholesale or commercial or mortgage or wealth or retail. We have all this data and we are taking that data and we're a Salesforce shop. And we also have um, utilizing AI, Einstein Tableau and other methods through the data warehouse, being able to take a look at all that data that we have and start mining it appropriately. Start looking at next best solutions that we don't do today tying into identification markers of those individuals that may need legacy planning, and then connecting the dots with the families and with other organizations like businesses, if you own businesses and do business exit planning. There's so many areas that we could support our customers with that we don't take advantage of today because we don't know it, even though that customer's right in front of us. But it takes a lot of work with the CRM system, with ensuring that we have the proper information for those customers, and then compile that information and utilize target marketing. Really have a marketing organization central to how you're going to work with these customers to provide that type of service that we're not doing today, but there's a clear need for that. And as I said earlier, it could be business exit planning, it could be the next inheritors, but connecting the dots with our customers with all the data that we have is going to be tremendous. So I'm excited about this. I'm also excited about what's going to happen way down the line because it's going to be beyond just data that the bank has, but data that the industry has, the data that the world has, the data about news that may occur. And if a, if a oil tanker explodes somewhere and we have oil executives as our customers, I mean, there's so many different things that we could utilize data for and technology for and AI for that we're not there yet with, but is going to come down the line. So it's an exciting time. Well said, and glad to hear that you're that you've begun that journey. Uh, I think you're you're ahead of of most. What's interesting about data and AI, if you bolt AI and machine learning to the data, is that you know what is AI good at? Recognizing patterns. And there are t a ton of patterns in, in the data that we create as, you know, financial advisors, right? Because if this happens, then that happens, then this is the result. And it's, and it's usually some type of a thing, whatever it is. It's the, it's the purchase of an investment product or opening an advisory account or putting more money into this or that or buying an insurance policy, whatever it is, right? But those are repeatable patterns that eventually becomes easy for the machines to learn, so to speak, right? And so then that stuff gets, as as those patterns are evolving, we can then be notified, 
we being advisors, right? And providers of wealth guidance and say, hey, we've noticed this is happening. This is what you should think about within the next, you know, six months or whatever. And that's what you're talking about, Jim, right? I mean, there's there there are engines out there that sit on top of data warehouses and do just that. And then they pump not only alerts to the right people, um, and, and let's just talk about advisors, but but also documentation they should send based on the recommendation that should be made, right? So in the background, the AI is creating PDFs that they should send out saying, you know, here's information that your client needs because this is what's going on, right? So I know that, the, that that's out there right now, right? There, there are engines that are doing that. And this, so that's the new world for us. And back to, to, to Z's point, that frees us up as advisors to truly become subject matter experts, to truly understand the lives and the evolution of the lives of our clients and be those trusted ad advisors and not worry about all that other stuff in the background that, you know, computers can and automate automation can take care of. So that's exciting. And we, you know, there's, there's always been fear of the next technological revolution ever since the industrial revolution. Right. And fear that, you know, people are going to be out of jobs. And I mean, and it's been one wave after the other and you, you hear this over and over again, and it's never happened. Jobs do get eliminated, but the people find higher level jobs, right? So it's the mundane stuff that gets eliminated. And then we, as a workforce in general, get elevated even more. We've had a lot of technological advantage, uh, evolutions in the last 25 years, and our, our, our unemployment rate hasn't suffered from it, <laughs> right? So the, the, all the evidence is there that this is just the next, this whole AI thing is just the next evolution of that. And it will... It, it, it will, if used properly, serve us well. There's a dark side. Clearly, everybody knows that. But there's a dark side to every technology, and you have to you have to be ready for it and manage it. Any other thoughts on this whole data mining, data is everything thing? David and then Mike. When Jim was speaking, I had the picture of this massive dump truck just backing up right next to an FA and dumping all the data out. <laughs> and then I thought, it, it just back to the example of the, the financial advisor, private banker, wealth advisor doesn't have a good business system, a good process for consistency on how to handle this information coming in or other technology that might help them. Once it's in, they can get it out somehow. But I think that that's a bottleneck, right? We're, we're building all these things so quickly. We're building Ferraris. And if the driver can't get it out of first gear, you know, you, you've got a bottleneck. So I think there's got to be some awareness that yes, all of this is great to have. And I know everybody's birthday and I know everybody's, you know, whatever all the data points are to enhance the connection, but that still has to be used and executed on at the FA level. And that pipeline, I think, is getting harder and harder to do unless we spend more time helping them to find a business approach, a business system, and, and making ourselves aware that we can build all these institutional things, but we keep building these institutional things without thinking a great deal about that one place that all goes through uh, that has to work. And I think that's going to be critical going forward. Yeah, well said. I agree. Mike, you have thoughts? Yeah, well said. I, I agree as well. And I, I was thinking about the like just even the evolution of if you're a financial institution exec, you know, and you're listening and you think about where the industry started, it, it, our success was always dependent upon the branches, right? Branches sending in referrals, advisors successful. When COVID hit, 
things kind of pivoted, at least for, you know, we've seen it in our institutions pivoted a lot where we're actually having institutions set goals for the marketing department to, uh, you know, provide lead gen to the uh, wealth management division. So now marketing is actually more heightened and more important than the, than the branches uh, reaching those members and customers who are not coming in the branches, right? So now though, I think what we're talking about here that ties into this is now we're gonna be dragging the IT department into this, right? And the IT department's gonna become very, very important to the success of wealth management because they're the ones who can go dig for that data, help us analyze the data and then reach those uh, clients who aren't coming in the branches and aren't responding to the marketing email. You know, how, how do we reach those folks? And IT is going to be that that next thing that takes us uh, from a wealth management department uh, to the next level, I think. I find it very interesting to that point that I know a lot of um, our friends in the industry who have left bank and credit union investment programs. And I say a lot, maybe it's not a lot, but it, it is a, a bit of a trend. And they've gone to technology companies, fintech companies, because they see that as the next great opportunity, and they have the inside knowledge to help these fintech companies structure their offerings appropriately, um, so they, you know, so so the technology does what it's supposed to do. So, and and I've been surprised by some of the the higher level people that I know ha, ha, who have said, "Yeah, I'm I'm jumping the fence, going to to fintech, and are having a great time at it." So it's just an indicator of what you're saying too, right? It's 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 interesting to see. One more question before we get to the lightning round, I believe, right, Bob? So let me pass it uh, back to you. Yeah, and that's kind of a wrap-up question, but um, that whole conversation on data started with data is the new oil. I am absolutely stealing that because there's no chatbot or AI that'll serve up that nugget. That's what trust and confidence <laughs> in human interaction brings to the table. Data is the new oil. Jeez. All right, so... A fiduciary duty is the highest standard of care that you can give to another person. It's based on trust, confidence, and loyalty. Mike, it's kind of a wrap-up question. How important do you feel it is to be a fiduciary? And how does financial wellness, and I'll call that grow and protect education, come into play? You know, it's one of those things when I got into the industry, I didn't know it was a choice. Like, you know, it is, you know, you get your series 65, yo, know, and you're a fiduciary, right? And we didn't need, you know, the DOL or SEC to tell us to behave the right way. You know, it's just like, it kind of, I, I feel, and I've said all along, is this the quality of the advisor, the character, you know, the, uh, are they living the values that the institution wants them to live? And the Financial Planning Association has, their tagline is heart, the heart for planning, right? And so planning takes time. And if you uh, have the heart to do that and to help that, you know, young person set up their 401k for the first time, you know, to help somebody with a thousand dollars, you know, not have a $250,000 minimum. You know, if you have that heart for planning, that character that you just want to help people, then that's a fiduciary, right? You're, you're, you're not worried about your GDC goal for the month. Our industry was built on GDC goals, <laughs> you know, for a long time. And so to get there though, if you expect, if you're a financial ex institution executive and you want your advisor to be a good quality advisor, and you want them to sell advisory products and services as a fiduciary and charge 1%, then you got to really look, look at the model, the comp model, to make sure that they can get there, right? Because how's an advisor going to make $100,000 next year if they're doing 1% good business? Some Most credit unions and banks, their comp model doesn't support that. 
right? You know, they got to really look at how they're compensating the advisors in order to get them to really behave in their true fiduciary fashion and not just focus on next month's GDC goal or else, right? You know, so the days of forgivable draws and, you know, clawbacks and things like that, those are way gone. They, we never did that uh, clawback stuff. You know, always give them a high base, let them, you know, make sure they're taking care of their, their expenses and so that they don't have to make a decision. I interviewed a lady in uh, Tucson, uh, this going back years ago. Uh, she was with a big bank. We were talking about her joining us at one of our institutions. I asked her about advisory. And she goes, yeah, I usually do that towards the end of the month. I'm like, what? And I, I, I was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know, I got to get to my goal first and then I do advisory. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I'm like, the poor consumer who walks in, you know, the first of the month's getting an annuity. The person who comes in on the 28th of the month's getting an advisory product. That's just a terrible comp model, right? It's like, you're never going to get that fiduciary experience if your comp model's messed up. So my opinion, if you set the comp model right and you hire the right quality of advisor, you'll get that fiduciary experience naturally. And I would say it's more than your opinion, because if I remember correctly, I think 92% of your practices that you're uh, going through PFG is all uh, fee-based. Correct. All right. So there's a testament to that as well in practice. It's not just a tagline. We got two guys over here that have licenses as well. So let me move over to David, uh, who's a fiduciary in his own right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because we talked earlier about trends and changes in the industry. And, and, you know, for the longest time, the industry would say, well, the brokerage side's not fiduciary. You have to be in the trust department and that's where wealth is and, and they're not. Uh, but the Series 65 and, and wrap fee money management goes back to the 70s on the brokerage side. So when you operate in that product or that solution on the brokerage side, you were there or RIA. So, you know, it existed in all the different structures. But I think to Mike's point, the part of the structure of the organization, whether it's comp or how products have different margin, you know, the industry itself has, has kind of put people in a place like the person he described of designing their own approach to how they were going to use product differently. But that's back to character and trust, one of the C words, uh, you know, so fiduciary and the ability to trust our, our, our financial advisors to do the right thing for the client. So it's a combination of things, but the industry, I think, is to the point where fiduciary um, is is used, you know, generically, not like it was in the past to differentiate the different businesses. And certainly at the end of the day, it, it comes down to the person in the chair, do the right thing for the client. Uh, and, and you don't have to put a wrapper around what that means. It's just the right thing to do. It's believing in Reg BI well before there was such a thing. Exactly. And Jim, our um, data is the new oil guy. <laughs> First of all, so impressed with your business, Mike, and growing it to 92%. That's unbelievable. And uh, we've had some growth as well in our product mix to make sure that we're building that type of advisory model. And, and it's nowhere near that, but it's clearly more than it was. We've grown that every single year um, uh, to the point that we're more than half of our business that way, which I'm very proud of because we started off you know, in a single digit. So it was, it was a, a work in progress, but it goes to showing how advisors have evolved. If you take a look at your advisors and your top producers, you'll notice that a lot of their business comes from the recurring side of the equation. It's not transactions. If you take a look at all your top people, you'll see that. And they've taken that model because they know 
what's important for them, and, and it's good because it's a long-term approach to the business, is what provides them business on an ongoing basis, as well as builds that relationship with that customer over time. So it's not just one time. You get to meet that customer over and over over again. And that could be with not just advisory uh, 65 products, but also with annuities. Most annuity sales today that we're seeing are going to a trailer format. It's not the upfront. It's the trailer format, which is fantastic to see too, because we know those customers are going to have interactions with a advisor on an ongoing basis. So it's good to see that evolution. I think it's going to continue to be that model. That's more important to advisors today than upfront money. So uh, I'm pleased to see that. And, and we're going we're gonna to continue to see products that are added to help that equation go on in the future. The battle that we'll continue to have, though, as, as um, within a bank or credit union outside of what Mike's doing, is the battle for profit margin, the battle to ensure that you hit revenue targets, and the, and the ability to change your model so that you're really looking at providing that type of base that Mike talked about for your young, new advisors that are coming up through the world so they could build a book. And it doesn't happen in one year. It doesn't happen in two years. So you have to make that investment over time to make it work. And I see that happening more and more in the business. So we're all migrating to making sure that we're above the Reg BI, um, you know, issues and critical issues that are out there in the industry and staying ahead of that. And the smart advisors are already there. So it's good to see that as a trend. Yeah, Mike. I love that, uh, Jim. And kind of the in my opinion, put a kind of a bow on it is, you know, if you start with those right people, right, you find the right people. Sometimes they're trapped though in a in a on a bad platform, an expensive platform. And if the platform's too expensive, then that's hard for all the other economics to work too. So to really, I'd say to any you know executive listening or advisor listening, really look at the cost structure of everything, you know, and how how expensive is it to do business on that particular platform? And what our experience was is there's ways to get the the platform expenses down lower. That helps increase the profits to the institution, and so then they can do more of these things, you know, easily. You know, so they're not having to take like a, a two or three year loss just to be a fiduciary. Doesn't have to work like that. You can be a fiduciary and make money, you know. And so it's a uh, uh, it's just transition, and it's planning that transition, but getting the cost structure low on the platform, and then back to attracting and retaining uh, assets. I just encourage everybody to update their website. You know, any good quality advisor who's getting recruited to your bank or credit union. First place they're going is to the website, and then they're going to say, well, going to a community bank or credit union, maybe, right? But if the website doesn't look professional enough or, or, or right enough, a good quality advisor is going to balk and not do that. The people who will be attracted are the ones who need a job. So really always be fine-tuning that website to get that uh, experience right for the client and client, but also for the advisor that you want to attract. I think that's a good way to get those folks into the house. Absolutely. And, and, to, and to Jim's point just before, to the manufacturers listening into this podcast and to those distribution partners that could send this podcast to those manufacturers, more products moving to fee-based. That's what we need. That's what we just heard. And I think that's going to help us move to more assets under management and looking at the business in that perspective as well. The products are moving that way. Annuities are moving that way. Life, nowhere near it but there's a lot of opportunities out there for the manufacturers to meet the needs of what financial advisors want out there in the market. Scott, before we go to lightning round, did you have any thoughts about this? 
Yeah, just a few wrap-up thoughts. One, one is, uh, Jim, you mentioned you know profitability and, and hitting revenue targets and everything else. I think the one thing that we have to be very careful of as financial institutions is to avoid the you know what I call reductionist thinking, and that is looking at profitability for each business unit versus looking at profitability for each client on the whole, right? Because one thing that we know for sure, for sure, because we have it statistically, is that as soon as a bank or credit union client becomes a client of the wealth management part of that institution, the overall profitability of that client starts soaring. And we know statistically within 12 months of opening up their first investment account, they have twice as much assets in the institution within 12 months that they did before that, right? We know their attrition rate goes from 14% down to 3%, right? But the main point of that is overall, that profitability is much better than a client that does not have a wealth management relationship. Now, on the reverse side of that equation, we know the efficiency ratio of wealth management kind of sucks. <laughs> so if you're only looking at that, you're like, well, you guys are failing. Well, let's stop that reductionist view and let's look at the big picture. And it's a whole different story. So I think that's as executives, we have to always push for that in the institution. One, uh, two is what I, I want to give kudos both to uh, to you, Mike, and you, Jim, because what you're talking about with the evolution of your offering to a fiduciary standard, essentially, and a fee-based model is that you've changed the culture of your organizations, right? So Jim, you've changed the culture of Hancock Whitney. Mike, you've changed not only the culture of PFG, but the credit unions and banks that you work with. And that's a heavy lift. That is not an easy thing to do, but you guys are doing it, right? And 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 the final point of that is, I wanna go back to something that you said, Mike, you, you used the term again, third-party RIA. I, I just wanna, bring the audience's attention to how unique that is in our channel. It doesn't exist until now. And because you've changed the culture so effectively to a trust-based, fiduciary-based culture, you can say you're a third-party RIA for the channel. Nobody else can say that right now. So kudos, good for you. Uh, very cool. All right, lightning round question for all of you. And maybe we'll start with you, Mike, on this one. So this is more on a... Uh, personal level, a fun kind of question. Are you more of an ocean person, a lake person, or a mountain person? I know you live in Arizona, so it'll be interesting, but you like California too. So what what are you? <laughs> an ocean person, for sure. Okay. So if you had, if you were planning a vacation, your first instinct would be, let's go to someplace with an ocean, right? Absolutely. The Pacific Ocean, you got Maui and Sydney and Del Mar, and then Atlantic Ocean, you got Cape Cod, Cinque Terre and Monaco. There's, yeah, I just like being near the ocean. Either well, one. You can, you can tell the way he rattled that off. He's yeah. He didn't even have to think about that. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, how about how about you, Jim? Love the beach. So it's the ocean. Love the beach. All right. And and so you're you grew up in California, but you're now in New Orleans, right? All right. So yeah. Kind of uh, yeah. Louisiana beaches are not where you really want to go. I could tell you that much. And I do <laughs> I do love Louisiana, especially New Orleans, but. Uh, we have to go to uh, Florida. It's only four hours, by the way, to go to Destin and San Destin and that whole Emerald Coast. So it's not that far of a drive. And I can never forget Hawaii. I love Hawaii. So, How do you define beach in New Orleans when you're already under sea level? 
That's a good question. And in <laughs> fact, um, nobody has basements here for a reason. It would be an aquarium. So, yes. <laughs> aquarium. <laughs> uh -huh. All right, Z, how about you? I'm going to buck the trend here. It's all about mountains for me. I, I love being on my snowboard. I love hiking. We do 50 mile hikes. Um, you know, we, we like the activity type thing, you know, for a beach, I think about, you know, being on the beach and having somebody bring me a Mai Tai, that doesn't sound like too much activity. It might be good. And it's probably a great brain break. And maybe it's uh maybe it's part of financial wellness. We didn't describe that, but yeah, we love, you know, we love the mountains. We we had a home up in northern Idaho, a ski place, and we just, whenever we can, we head to the mountains. All right, Bob, how about you? Uh, you could probably answer this for me. The condo is looking at the beach and on the intracoastal. And this house in New York, I'm only two miles from a boardwalk on the Long Island Sound. Ocean, beach, water, give it to me all. Well, interesting. So I'm... Uh... I, I'm with David. I've always been a mountain person. Uh, I've literally been called by many people a goat because I, I always want to climb to the highest peak around. I always love the mountains. I grew, grew up skiing. Not that I mind the ocean. I mean, I so I, I always put it this way. I love the mountains and I like the ocean. <laughs> put me in the mountains. I'm a, I'm a happy goat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a wrap, you guys, and much appreciate all of your your insights, your intellect, your your thoughts on these topics, and your willingness to participate in our podcast. This was a this was a good, enlightening, and engaging discussion. So thank you, and I'm going to pass it to Bob for wrap up comments. Absolutely, and thanks again to our panel for a stimulating conversation today. Thanks to Priority Financial Group for sponsoring today's conversation. This podcast series and our other series, Untangling Fintech and Industry Trend Watch, can be found wherever you get your other podcasts and music. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, you name it, Stathis Mattel is on it. So thank you all again. Send this around when you after you listen to it. Let's get let's spread the word about how we can gather and retain assets. Good night, everybody. Good night or good day or whatever time it is when you're listening. <laughs> Bye, everybody. And thanks again, you guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. Also, don't forget to check out our two other podcast series, Untangling FinTech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. Please subscribe to our podcast and join us again for future episodes.